0: Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 6. Millions of years before the Travel Channel existed to report the change, storms inside the earth have raised the land in a serried waves, like a monsoon seascape. So any voyager in this territory is nearly always moving up or down, seldom on the horizontal. Evergreen forests, pine and fir and spruce, navigate the waves of soil and rock, docking along every shore of snow village, but also finding harbors deep within town limits. 14,000 full-time residents live here. Most make their living directly or indirectly from nature, as surely as do those who dwell in fishing ports in lower, balmier lands. Snow Village Resort and Spa, with its world-famous network of ski runs, along with other area hotels and winter sports facilities, draws so many vacationers that the town's population increases 60% from mid-October through March. Camping, hiking, boating, and whitewater rafting pull in almost as many the rest of the year. Autumn weather arrives early in the Rocky Mountains, but that day in September was not one of our refreshingly crisp afternoons pleasantly warm air as still as the greatly compressed fathoms at the bottom of an ocean conspire with golden afternoon sunlight to give snow village the look of a community petrified in amber look i just want to tell you real quick there's places that i know without a shadow of a doubt i will never live in i might not even vacation there just like there are certain things that you know you won't eat Judging the book by its cover, sure, but still, I'm not going to live in a place called Tornado Alley. I feel like that's not a good idea. Like living at a place called Levy or Floodline or Snow Village. Yeah, I know snow isn't as bad as the rest of them, but ain't it though? Ain't it though? Hmm. Because my parents' house is in a perimeter neighborhood, I drove rather than walked into the heart of town, where I had a few errands to undertake. In those days, I owned a seven-year-old Dodge Daytona Shelby Z. Other than my mother and grandmother, I had not yet met a woman I could love as much as I loved that sporty little coupe. I have no mechanical skills, and I lack the talent to acquire any. The workings of an engine are as mysterious to me as is the enduring popularity of the tuna casserole. I love that peppy little Dodge sheerly for its form, the sleek lines, the black paint job, the harvest moon yellow racing stripes. That car was a piece of the night, driven down from the sky, with evidence of a lunar sideswipe on its flanks. Generally speaking, I do not romanticize inanimate objects unless they can be eaten. The Dodge was a rare exception. Arriving downtown, thus far having been spared from a head-on collision with an ironic speeding hearse, I passed several minutes in a search for the perfect parking spot. Much of Alpine Avenue, our main street, features angled to the curb parking, which I avoided in those days. The doors of flanking vehicles, if opened carelessly, could dent my Shelby Z and chip its paint. I took its every injury as a personal wound. I much preferred the parallel park and found a suitable place across the street from Center Square Park, which is in fact square and in the center of town. We Rocky Mountain types sometimes are as plain spoken as our magnificent scenery is ornate. I curbed the Shelby Z behind the yellow panel van in front of the snow mansion, a landmark open to the public 11 months of the year but closed here in September, which falls between the two main tourist seasons. Ordinarily, of course, I would have stepped from the car on the driver's side. As I was about to exit, a pickup truck exploded past, dangerously close and at twice the posted speed. Had I opened the door mere seconds sooner and started to get out, I would have spent the autumn hospitalized and have met the winter with fewer limbs. On any other day, I might have muttered to myself about the driver's recklessness and then opened the door in their wake. Not this time. Being cautious, but I hope not too cautious, I slid over the console into the pasture seat and got out on the curbside. At once I looked up. No falling safe. So far, so good. Founded in 1872 with gold mining and railroad money, Much of Snow Village is an alfresco museum of Victorian architecture, especially on the town square, where an active preservation society has been most successful. Brick and limestone were the favorite building materials in the four blocks surrounding the park, with carved or molded pediments over doors and windows and ornate iron railings. Here, the street trees are larches, tall, conical, and old, They had not yet traded their summer green wardrobe for autumn gold. I had business at the dry cleaners, at the bank, and at the library. None of these establishments were on the side of the park where I found a suitable place for my car. Of the three, the bank most concerned me. Occasionally, people robbed banks. Bystanders were sometimes shot. Prudence suggested that I wait until the following day to do my banking. On the other hand, though, Though no dry cleaner has ever been charged with causing a catastrophe and the source of martinizing a three-piece wool suit, I was pretty sure they used caustic, toxic, perhaps even explosive chemicals. Likewise, with all the narrow aisles between wooden shelves packed full of highly combustible books, libraries, are potential fire traps. Halted by indecision, I stood on the sidewalk, dappled with large shadows and sunlight, Because Grandpa Joseph's predictions of five terrible days lacked specificity, I had not been able to plan defensively for any of them. All my life, however, I had been preparing psychologically. (laughs) All my life I've been ready to fight, basically. Yet, all that preparation afforded me no comfort. My imagination had hatched a crawling dread that crept down my spine and into every extremity, As long as I had not ventured out of the house, the comfort of home and the courage of family had insulated me from fear. Now, I felt exposed, vulnerable, targeted. Paranoia may be an occupational hazard of spies, politicians, drug dealers, and big city cops, but bakers rarely suffer from it. Weevils in the flour and a shortage of bitter chocolate in the pantry do not at once strike us as evidence of cunning adversaries and vast conspiracies. Having led a fortunate, cozy, and after the night of my birth, happily uneventful life, I had made no enemies of whom I was aware. Yet I surveyed the second and third floor windows overlooking the town square, convinced I was spot a sniper drawing a bead on me. Until that moment, my assumption had always been that whatever misfortune befell me in the five days would be impersonal, an act of nature, lightning strike snake bite, cerebral thrombosis, incoming meteorite, or otherwise it might be an accident resulting from the fallibility of my fellow human beings. A runaway concrete truck, a runaway train, a faultily constructed propane tank. Even stumbling into the middle of a bank robbery and being shot would be a kind of an accident, considering that I could have delayed my banking error by taking a walk in the park feeding squirrels, getting bitten, and contracting rabies. Now I was paralyzed by the possibility of intent, by the realization that an unknown person might consciously select me as the object upon which to visit mayhem and misery. They didn't have to be anyone I knew. Most likely, they would be a crazed loner, Some homicidal stranger with a grudge against life, a rifle, plenty of hollow point ammunition, and a supply of tasty high protein power bars to keep him alert during a long standoff with the police. Many window panes blazed with orange reflections of the afternoon sun. Others were dark, at angles that didn't take the solar image. Any of those might have been open, the gunman lurking in the shadows beyond. In my paralysis, I became convinced that I possessed the talent for precognition that Grandpa Joseph had displayed on his deathbed. The sniper was not just a possibility. They were here, finger on the trigger. I had not imagined them, but sensed them clairvoyantly, them and my bullet-riddled future. I tried to continue forward and then attempted to retreat, but I couldn't move. I felt that a step in the wrong direction would take me into the path of a bullet. Of course, as long as I stood motionless, I made a perfect target. Rational argument, however, couldn't dispel the paralysis. My gaze rose from windows or rooftops, which might provide an even more likely roost for a sniper. So intense was my concentration that I heard but didn't respond to the question until he repeated it. I said, Are you all right? I lowered my attention from the search for a sniper to the young man standing on the sidewalk in front of me. Dark-haired, green-eyed, he was handsome enough to be a movie star. For a moment, I felt disoriented, as though I had briefly stepped outside the flow of time, and now, stepping in again, could not adjust to the pace of life. He glanced towards the rooftops that had concerned me, then fixed me with those remarkable eyes. You don't look well. My tongue felt thick. I I just thought I saw something over there. This statement was peculiar enough to tweak an uncertain smile from him. You mean something in the sky? I couldn't explain that my focus had been on rooftops, because it seemed this would lead me inexorably to the revelation that I had been mesmerized by the possibility of a sniper. Instead, I said, yes, um, in the sky, something odd and at once realized that this statement made me seem no less peculiar than talk of a sniper would have done. UFO, you mean? he asked, revealing a lopsided smile as winning as that of a Tom Cruise at his most insouciant. He might in fact have been a well-known actor, a rising star, many entertainment figures vacationed in Snow Village. Even if he had been famous, I wouldn't have recognized him. I didn't have that much interest in movies, being too busy with baking and family and life. The only film I had seen that year had been Forrest Gump. Now I suppose that I must have appeared to have the IQ of the title character. Heat blossomed in my face, and I said with some embarrassment, Maybe a UFO thing, probably not, I don't know, it's it's gone now. Are you alright? He repeated. Yeah, sure, I'm fine. Just the sky thing. Gone now, I said, embarrassed to hear myself babbling. His amused scrutiny broke my paralysis. I wished him a good day, walked away, tripped on a fault in the sidewalk, and almost fell. When I regained my balance, I didn't look back. I knew he would be there watching me, his face alight with that million-dollar smile. I couldn't understand how I had so completely given myself to an irrational fear. Being shot by a sniper was no more likely than being abducted by extraterrestrials. Grimly determined to get a grip on myself, I went directly to the bank. What would be would be. That's K y'all. Seriously. It's, it's not. Gen. A. Quas. Um, Gen. A. Quas. I don't know what. So when they say somebody has a certain Gen. A. they're saying somebody has a certain I don't know what, but it's cool. It's cool. Cool. If a ruthless holdup gang crippled me with a shot to the spine, that might be preferable to being horribly disfigured in a library fire or to spending the rest of my life on an artificial lung machine after inhaling toxic fumes in a catastrophic dry cleaning accident. The bank will be closing in minutes. Consequently, there are a few customers, but everyone looks suspicious to me. I try not to turn my back on any of them. I didn't even trust an 80-year-old lady whose head bobbed with palsy. Some professional thieves were masters of disguise. The tremors might prove to be a brilliant bit of acting, but her chin wart sure looked real. In the 19th century, they expected banks to be impressive. The lobby had a granite floor, granite walls, fluted columns, and a lot of bronze work. When a bank employee crossing the room dropped a ledger book, The report ricocheting off the walls sounded quite like a gunshot. I twitched, but I didn't soil my pants. After depositing a paycheck and taking back a little cash, I departed without incident. The revolving door felt confining, but it brought me safely into the warm afternoon. I don't know if my kids have ever been inside of a bank. Now that I think about it, I don't think my... My youngest son has ever stepped foot inside of a bank with direct deposit and mobile banking and all that kind of stuff you can do and and Google Google Google, Google wallet and all and, and and Apple cash and all that kind of stuff I don't know if he's ever actually been inside of a bank. that's wild to me. I mean, I'm not going to change it because I hate going inside of banks, like, but he's never had, they've never had the experience of filling out a deposit slip, like all these things that they never would have to do again, like writing cursive. I've said too much. I needed to pick up several garments of the dry cleaners. So I left that task for last and went to the library. The Cornelius Rutherford Snow Library is much bigger than one would expect for a town as small as ours, a handsome limestone structure, flanking the main entry are stone lions on plinths in the shape of books. The lions are not frozen in a roar, neither are they posed with heads raised in alert. Curiously, both are shown asleep, as if they've been reading a politician's autobiography and have been thus sedated. Cornelius, whose money built the library, didn't have a great deal of interest in books, but thought that he should. Finding a handsome library was, to his way of reasoning, as broadening to the spirit and as edifying to the mind as actually having poured through hundreds of tomes. When the building was complete, he thereafter thought of himself as a well-read man. Our town isn't named after the form in which most of its annual precipitation falls. It honors instead the railroad and mining magnate whose pre-income tax fortune founded it, Cornelius Rutherford Snow. I don't even care. I, don't even, I still like it. I don't even care. Just inside the front doors of the library hangs a picture of Cornelius. He is all stilly eyes, mustache, mutton chops, and pride. When I entered, no one sat at any of the reading tables. The only patron in sight was at the main desk, leaning casually against the high counter in a hushed conversation with Lionel Davis, the head librarian. As I drew near the elevated park, I recognized a patron. His green eyes brightened at the sight of me, and his big smile was friendly, not mocking, though he said to Lionel, I think this gentleman will be wanting a book on flying saucers. I had known Lionel Davis forever, He had made a life of books to the same extent that I made a life of baking. He was warm hearted, kind, with enthusiasms ranging from Egyptian history to hard boiled detective novels. You know, I think about it all the time. What I would do if I had like seven or eight or nine or ten million dollars. It would have to be more than two million, because two million in California. (laughs) But if I had that kind of money, what I would do with my life? Like, how would I live after I no longer had to work it? my job of course i keep catering because i love doing it but the more i think about it like initially i was like i go back to school and i become a counselor or you know something like that nah i kind of want to be a librarian i don't know how much money librarians make but i love being around books and talking to people about books and just helping people i think it would be fun and it would be nice I'm sure they get paid a lot more than I picture in my mind, too. So that'll be good, too. You know? He had the worn yet perpetually childlike countenance of a kindly blacksmith or a sincere vicar in a Dickens novel. I knew his face well, but I had never seen it with an expression quite like the one that currently occupied it. His smile was broad, but his eyes were narrow. A tick at the left corner of his mouth suggested that the eyes more truly revealed his state of mind than did the smile. If I recognized a warning in his face, I could not have done anything to save myself or him. The handsome fellow with the porcelain white teeth had already decided on a course of action the moment I entered. First, he shot Lionel Davis in the head. Chapter 7 the pistol made a hard, flat noise, not half as loud as I would have expected. Crazily, I thought how in the movies they didn't fire real bullets, but blanks, so this sound would have to be enhanced in post-production. I almost looked around for the cameras, the crew. The shooter was movie star handsome, the gunshot didn't seem right, and no one would have any reason to kill as sweet a man as Lionel Davis. Which must mean that all of this had been scripted, and that the finished film would be in theaters nationwide next summer. How many flies do you swallow on an average day, standing around with your mouth hanging open? Asked the killer. Is your mouth ever not hanging open? He appeared to be amused by me, to have already forgotten Lionel, as if killing a librarian had been an act of no more consequence than stepping on an ant. I heard my voice turn hollow with stunned incomprehension, brittle with anger. What did he ever do to you? Who? Who? Though you would think his perplexity must have been an act, tough guy bravado meant to impress me with his cruelty? I assure you that it wasn't. I knew at once that he didn't relate my question to the man whom he had just murdered. The word insane did not entirely describe him, but it was a good adjective with which to begin. Surprised the fear remained absent from my voice, even as more anger crowded into it, I said, Lionel, He was a good man. Gentle. Oh, him. Lionel Davis. He had a name, you know. He had a life. Friends. He was somebody. Genuinely puzzled, his smile turning uneasy, he said, Wasn't he just a librarian? You sick son of a bitch. As the smile stiffened, his features grew pale, grew hard, as though flesh might transform into a plastered death mask. He raised the pistol, pointed it at my chest, and with the utmost seriousness said, Don't you dare insult my mother. The offense he took in my language, so out of proportion to the indifference with which he had committed murder, struck me as darkly funny. If a laugh, even one of shocked disbelief, had escaped me then, I'm sure he would have killed me. Confronted by the muzzle of a handgun, I felt fear enter the halls of my mind, but I didn't give it the keys to every room. Earlier in the street, the prospect of a sniper had paralyzed me with dread. I realized now that I had not been afraid of a rifleman in some high concealment, but that I had been petrified because I didn't know if the sniper was real or if instead of a mortal threat might be a thousand other things. When danger could be sensed but not identified, then everyone and everything becomes a source of concern. The world from horizon to horizon seems hostile. Fear of the unknown is the most purely distilled and potent terror. Now I had identified my enemy. Although he might be a sociopath capable of any atrocity, I felt some relief because I knew his face. The uncountable threats in my imagination had evaporated. Replaced by this one real danger. His hard expression softened. He lowered the pistol. With perhaps 15 feet between us, I didn't dare rush him. I could only repeat, what did he ever do to you? He smiled and shrugged. I wouldn't have shot him if you hadn't come in. Like a slowly turning auger, the pain of Lionel's death drilled deeper into me. The tremor in my voice was grief, not fear. What are you you talking about? By myself, I can't manage two hostages. He was here alone. The assistant librarian is out sick. There were no patrons at the moment. He was going to lock the doors until you came in. Don't tell me I'm responsible. Oh, oh, no, 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 not at all. He assured me with what sounded like genuine concern for my feelings. Not not your fault, it's just one of those things. Just one of those things, I repeated with some astonishment, unable to comprehend a mind that could be so casual about murder. I might have shot you instead, he said, but having met you earlier in the street, I figured you'd be more interesting company than a boring old librarian. What do you need a hostage for? In case things go wrong. What things? You'll see. His sport coat was cut stylishly full. From one of the roomy interior pockets, he withdrew a pair of handcuffs. I'm going to throw these to you. I don't want them. He smiled. You are going to be fun. Catch them. Lock one cup behind your right wrist. Then lie on the floor with both hands behind your back so I can finish the job. When he threw the cuffs, I sidestepped them. They rattled off a reading table, clattered to the floor. He had been holding the pistol at his side. He aimed at me again. Though I had stared down that muzzle before, I didn't find it any less disconcerting the second time. I had never held a handgun, let alone fired one. In my line of work, the closest thing to a weapon is a cake knife, maybe a rolling pin. We bakers, however, tend not to carry rolling pins and shoulder holsters and are therefore defenseless in situations like this. Pick him up, big fella. Big fella. He was approximately my size. Pick him up or I'll do a lionel on you and just wait for another hostage to walk through the door. I have been using my grief and my anger over Lionel's death to suppress my terror. Fear could diminish and defeat me, but now I realized that fearlessness would get me killed. Wisely giving recognition to the coward in me, I stooped, picked up the cuffs, and clamped one steel circlet around my right wrist. Snaring a set of keys off the librarian's desk, he said, Don't lie down yet. Stay on your feet where I can see you while I lock the door. When he was halfway between the main desk and a portrait of Cornelius Rutherford Snow, The door opened. A young woman, a stranger to me, entered with a stack of books. She was prettier than a Gatola orange with a chocolate butter icing decorated with candied orange pills and cherries. I wouldn't be able to endure seeing her shot. Not her. Chapter 8 She was prettier than a souffle of chocolate drizzled with crème anglaise. Flavored by apricots served in a limoges cup on a limoges plate on a silver charger by candlelight. The door swung shut behind her, and she had taken a few steps into the room before she realized that this was not a typical library tableau. She couldn't see the dead man behind the desk, but she spotted the handcuffs dangling from my right wrist. When she spoke, She had a wonderfully throaty voice, the effect of which was heightened by the fact that she addressed the killer in a stage whisper. Is that a gun? Doesn't it look like a gun? Well, it might be a toy, she said. I mean, is it a real gun? Gesturing at me with the weapon, he said, you want to see me shoot him with it? I sensed that I had just become the least desirable of available hostages. Gee, she said, that seems a little extreme. I only need one hostage. Nevertheless, she said with an aplomb that dazzled me, maybe you could just fire a shot into the ceiling. The killer smiled at her with all the expansive good humor that he had directed towards me earlier in the street. In fact, It was a warmer and even more adorable smile than the one I had received. "'Why are you whispering?' he asked. "'It's a library,' she whispered. "'The usual rules have been suspended.' "'Are you the librarian?' she asked him. "'Me? A librarian? No. In fact—' "'Then you cannot possibly have the authority to suspend the rules,' she said, speaking softly, but no longer in a whisper.' "'This gives me the authority,' he declared, and fired a round into the ceiling. She glanced at the front windows, where the street was visible only in a succession of wedges between the half-closed Venetian blinds. When she looked next at me, I saw that she was disappointed, as I had been, by the pathetic volume of the shot. The walls, padded by books, absorbed the sound. Outside, it might not have been much louder than a muffled cough.' Giving no indication that his casual gunfire rattled her, she said, May I put these books down somewhere? They're quite an armful. With a pistol, he indicated a reading table. There. As the woman put down the books, the killer went to the door and locked it, always keeping an eye on us. I don't mean to criticize, the woman said. And I'm sure you know your business better than I do. But you're wrong about only needing one hostage. She was so dangerously appealing to the eye that, under other circumstances, she could have reduced any god to his most deeply stupid state of desire. Already, however, I found myself more interested in what she had to say than I was in her figure, more fascinated by her chutzpah than by her radiant face. The maniac seemed to share my fascination. By his expression, anyone could see that she had charmed him. His killer smile became more luminous. When he spoke to her, his voice had no bite to it, no trace of sarcasm. You have a theory or something about hostages? She shook her head. Not a theory, just a practical observation. If you wind up in a showdown with the police and you only have one hostage, how are you going to convince them you would actually kill the person and that you're not bluffing? How? he and I asked simultaneously. You couldn't make them believe you, she said, not beyond a shadow of a doubt. So they might try to rush you, in which case both you and the hostage wind up dead. I could be pretty convincing. He assured her in a mellower tone that suggested he might be thinking of asking her for a date. If I was a cop, I wouldn't believe you for a minute. You're too cute to be a killer. To me, she said, isn't he too cute? Almost said I didn't think he was that cute so you can see what I mean by her bringing out the deeply stupid in a guy. But what if you had two hostages, she continued. You could kill one to prove the sincerity of your threat, and after that, the second one would be a reliable shield. No cop would dare test you twice. He stared at her for a moment. You're some piece of work, he said at last, and clearly meant to compliment her. Well, she replied, indicating the stack of books that she had just returned. I'm a reader and a thinker, that's all. What's your name? He asked. Lori. Lori what? Lori Lynn Hicks, she said. And you are? He opened his mouth, almost told her his name, then smiled and said, I'm a man of mystery. And a man with a mission by the look of it. I've already killed a librarian, he told her, as if murder were a resume enhancer. I was sort of afraid you had, she said. I cleared my throat. throat) My name is James. Hi, Jimmy, she said. And though she smiled, I saw in her eyes a terrible sadness and desperate calculation. Go stand beside him, the maniac ordered. Lori came to me. She smelled as good as she looked. Fresh, clean, lemony. Cuff yourself to him. As she locked the empty ring around her left wrist, thereby linking her fates, I felt I should say something to comfort her. In response to the desperation, I glanced in her eyes. Wit failed me, and I could only say, You smell like lemons. I spent the day making homemade lemon marmalade. I intended to have the first of it tonight on toasted English muffins. I'll brew a pot of bittersweet hot chocolate with a dash of cinnamon, I told her. That and your marmalade muffins will be the perfect thing to celebrate. Clearly she appreciated my confident assertion of our survival, but her eyes were no less troubled. Checking his wristwatch, the maniac said, "This is taking too much time. I've got a lot of research to do before the explosions start." Chapter 9. All of our yesterdays neatly shelved, time cataloged in drawers, news grows bitter and yellow under the library and catacombs of paper. The killer had learned that the Snow County Gazette had for more than a century stored their dead issues here in the sub-basement, two stories under the town square. They called it a priceless archive of local history. Preserved for the ages in the Gazette morgue were the details of Girl Scout bake sales, school board elections, and zoning battles over the intent to sugar time donuts to expand the size of its operation. Every issue from 1950 forward could be viewed on microfiche. When your research led you to earlier dates, you're supposed to fill out a requisition form for hard copies of the Gazette. A staff member will oversee your perusal of the newspaper. If you were a person who shot librarians for no reason, standard procedures were of no concern to you. The maniac prowled the archives and took what he wanted to a study table. He handled the yellowing newsprint with no more consideration for his preservation than he would have shown for the most current edition of USA Today. He had parked Lori Lynn Hicks and me in a pair of chairs at the farther end of the enormous room in which he worked. We were not close enough to see which articles in the Gazette interested him. We sat under a barrel vaulted ceiling, under a double row of inverted torcheries that cast a dusty light acceptable only to those scholars who had lived in the time when electricity was new and the memory of oil lamps still fresh from childhood. With another set of handcuffs, our captor linked our wrist shackles to a back rail of one of the chairs of which we were perched. Because not all of the archives were contained in this one room, He paid repeated visits to an adjacent chamber, leaving us alone at times. His absences afforded us no chance to escape. Chained together and dragging a chair, we could move neither quickly nor quietly. "'I've got a nail file in my purse,' Laurie whispered. I glanced down at her cuffed hand next to mine, a strong but graceful hand, elegant fingers. "'Your nails look fine,' I assured her. "'Are you serious?' Absolutely. I like the shade of your polish. It looks like candy cherries. It's called Glissage de Frambas. Then it's misnamed. It's not a shade of any raspberries I've ever worked with. You work with raspberries? I'm a baker. Gonna be a pastry chef. She sounded slightly disappointed. You look more dangerous than a pastry chef. Well, I'm biggish for my size. Is that what it is? And bakers tend to have strong hands. No, she said, it's your eyes. There's something dangerous about your eyes. This was adolescent wish fulfillment of the purest kind. Being told by a beautiful woman that you have dangerous eyes. She said, they're direct. A nice shade of blue, but there's something lunatic about them. Lunatic eyes are dangerous eyes, all right, but not romantic. Dangerous James Bond has dangerous eyes, but Charles Manson has lunatic eyes. Charles Manson, Osama bin Laden, Wiley e. Coyote. Women stand in line for James Bond, but Wiley e. Coyote can't get a date. She said, The reason I mentioned a nail file in my purse is because it's a metal file, sharp enough at one end to be a weapon. Oh. I felt inane, and I couldn't blame my dunderheadedness entirely on her stupidity-inducing good looks. He took your purse, I noted. Maybe I can get it back. Her handbag stood on the table where he sat, reading old issues of the Snow County Gazette. The next time he left the room, we could stand as erect on a chair as our backs would allow, and hobble in tandem and as fast as possible towards her purse. The noise would most likely draw him back before he reached our goal or we can make our way across the room with stealth foremost in mind, which will require us to move as slowly as Siamese twins negotiating a minefield. Judging by the average length of time that he had thus far been absent when extracting additional issues from the files, we wouldn't reach the person before he returned. As if my thoughts were as clear to her as the lunacy in my eyes, she said, that's not what I had in mind. I'm thinking... If I claim a female emergency, he'll let me have my purse. Female emergency. Maybe it was a shock of living out my grandfather's prediction, or maybe it was a persistent memory of the librarian being shot, but I couldn't get my mind around the meaning of those two words. Aware of my befuddlement, as she seemed to be aware of every electrical current leaping across every synapse in my brain, Lori said, If I tell him I'm having my period and I desperately need a tampon, I'm sure he'll do the gentlemanly thing and give me my purse. He's a murderer, I reminded her. But he doesn't seem to be a particularly rude murderer. He shot Lionel Davis in the head. That doesn't mean he's incapable of courtesy. I wouldn't bet the bank on it, I said. She squinched her face in annoyance and still looked darn good. I hope to God you're not a congenital pessimist. That would be just too much. Held hostage by a librarian killer and shackled to a congenital pessimist. I didn't want to be disagreeable. I wanted her to like me. Every guy wants a good looking woman to like him. Nevertheless, I could not accept her characterization of me. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. She sighed. That's what every pessimist says. You'll see, I said lamely. I'm not a pessimist. I'm an indefatigable optimist, she informed me. Do you know what that means? Indefatigable? Incapable of being fatigued. Persistent. Tireless, she stressed. I'm a tireless optimist. It's a fine line between an optimist and a Pollyanna. 50 feet away, having left the room earlier, the killer returned to his table with an armload of yellowing newspapers. Lori eyed him with predatory calculation. When the moment's right, she whispered. I'm going to tell him I have a female emergency and I need my purse. Sharp or not, a nail file isn't much use against a gun, I protested. There you go again, congenital pessimism. That can't be a good thing even in a baker. If you expect all your cakes to fall, they will. My cakes never fall. She raised one eyebrow. So you say. You think you could stab him in the heart and just stop him like a clock? I asked with enough disdain to get my point across, but not sarcastically enough to alienate her from the possibility that we could have dinner together if we survived the day. Stop his heart? Of course not. Second best would be to go for the neck, sever the carotid artery. First choice would be to put out an eye. She looked like a dream and talked like a nightmare. I was probably guilty of gaping again. I know I sputtered. Put out an eye. Drive it deep enough and you might even damage the brain, she said, nodding as if in somber agreement with herself. He'd have an instant convulsion. Drop the gun. And if he didn't drop it, he'd be so devastated we could easily just take the pistol out of his hand. Oh my God, you're going to get us killed. There you go again, she said. Listen, I tried to reason with her. When the crunch came, you wouldn't have the stomach to do something like that. I certainly would, to save my life. Alarmed by her calm conviction, I insisted, You'd flinch at the last moment. I never flinched from anything. Have you ever stabbed someone in the eye before? No, but I can clearly picture myself doing it. I couldn't suppress the sarcasm any longer. What are you, a professional assassin or something? She frowned. Keep your voice down. I'm a dance instructor. And teaching ballet prepares you to put out a man's eye. Of course not, silly, I don't teach ballet. I give ballroom dancing lessons. Foxtrot, walt, rumba, tango, cha cha, swing, you name it. You name it Just my luck. To be cut to a beautiful woman who turned out to be a ballroom dance instructor and me a lummox. You'll flinch, I insisted, and you'll miss his eye and he'll shoot us dead. Even if I flub it, she said, which I won't, but even if I do, he won't shoot us dead. Haven't you been paying attention? He needs hostages. I disagreed. He doesn't need hostages who try to stab him in the eye. She raised her eyes as if imploring the heavens beyond the ceiling. Please tell me I'm not shackled to a pessimist and a coward. I'm not a coward. I'm just responsibly cautious. That's what every coward says. That's also what every responsibly cautious person says. I replied, wishing I didn't sound so defensive. At the far end of the room, the maniac began to pound one fist against the newspaper he was reading, then both fists pounding and pounding like a baby in a tantrum face contorted fearsomely. He made inarticulate noises of rage. Some rough Neanderthal consciousness, remnant in his genes, seemed to break free from the chains of time and DNA. Fury informed his voice, then frustration, then what might have been a wild grief, then Fury once more escalating. This was the performance of an animal howling with loss, its rage rooted in the black soil of misery. He pushed his chair back from the table, picked up his pistol. He emptied the remaining eight rounds in the magazine, aiming at the newspaper he had been reading. The hard report of each shot boomed off the vaulted ceiling, rang off the brass shades of the inverted tortureries, and crashed back and forth between the metal filing cabinets. I felt echoes of each concussion humming in my teeth. Cut loose two floors underground, the barrage would be at most a faint crackle at street level. Splinters of the old oak refectory table sprayed and scraps of paper spun and a couple bullets ricocheted through the air, some fragments trailing threads of smoke. The fragrance of aging newsprint was seasoned with the more accurate scent of gunfire and with the raw wood smell liberated from the table's wounds. For a moment, as he repeatedly squeezed the trigger without effect, I rejoiced that he had depleted his ammunition. But of course he had a spare magazine, perhaps several. While he reloaded the weapon, he seemed intent on delivering 10 more rounds to the hated newspaper. Instead, with the fresh magazine installed, his rage abruptly abated. He began to weep. Wretched sobs racked him. He collapsed into his chair once more and put down the gun. He leaned over the table and seemed to want to piece together the pages that he had ripped and riddled with gunfire, as if some story therein was precious to him. Still lemony enough to sweeten the air that had been soured by gunfire, Lori Lynn Hicks tilted her head towards me and whispered, You see? He's vulnerable. I wondered if excessive optimism could ever qualify as a form of madness. Gazing into her eyes, I saw, as previously, the fear that she adamantly refused to express. She winked. Her stubborn resistance to terror scared me because it seemed so reckless, so irrational. And yet, I loved her for it. Whitting through me, like the spirit of death's black horse, came a premonition that she would be shot. Despair followed this dark precognitive flash, and I was desperate to protect her. In time... In time, the premonition eventually proved true, and nothing I did was able to alter the trajectory of the bullet. 916 Wretched 1537 Ratchet and at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. You can leave a review on Spotify, it takes like 13 seconds. You can also leave a review on uh, Podchaser, copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts, and then copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast. One dollar will get you a ton of content. Uh, you can also donate to the show at buymeacoffee.com sscast or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to you later. Peace.